So basically, what I'm going to tell you is my story. <clears throat> and you'll have to forgive me because it's quite long. The Holy Spirit has been very patient with me. It took a long, long time. So, my earthly father <clears throat> died two weeks before my fifth birthday. So I never got to know him. He was born in New York, grew up there, went to college there and medical school, and set up a practice there. He was an eye surgeon. When the war broke out, the war, for those of you who don't know, is the Second World War. It was the only the war. Um, he gave up his practice and volunteered to serve with the US Army Medical Corps. My mother was born in England, grew up there, she's English, was English, and she grew up in the west of England, in Dorset. Her father, uncle, and grandfather were all admirals in the Royal Navy. So when the war broke out, just as she was getting her degree at Oxford, she joined the Wrens, that's the Women's Royal Naval Service. She was in signaling. Now my father was sent to the west of England to deal with eye injuries sent back from the front. My mother was stationed in that part of the world too, and they met at a cocktail party during the war. They fell in love, and after the war, my father decided he wanted to settle in California, in Santa Monica, and start a practice there, which he did. And once that was settled, he sent for my mother, she came over, and they got married in Santa Monica. <clears throat> I was born in Santa Monica, believe it or not, delivered by my father on the kitchen table in our penthouse apartment on the ocean front in Santa Monica. Hard to believe. It must have been an idyllic life. My mother certainly thought so. After the hardship shortages and just rationing and so on in World War England, because even after the war, rationing continued until 1953. They had two more children and bought a house with a little land up in the hills above Santa Monica. <coughs> then disaster struck. As I said, my father died two weeks before my fifth birthday. That left my mother a widow at the age of 30, with three children under the age of five, and another on the way. She had no means of support, so she decided to take us all back to England to be near her family, and that's how I came to grow up there. 1953 was not a good time to be an American in England. England was rife with anti-American prejudice. English people thought that America had stolen England's place in the sun. At the age of five, all unsuspecting, I walked into a buzzsaw of anti-American sentiment. I was a yank. We lived in small country villages in Dorset in the west of England, a far cry from Santa Monica, but I loved it. I became a country boy, and I'm proud to say that I still am. We attended the village church because one did, I became a choir boy. I first read scripture aloud in that church at the age of seven. 
Gosh, didn't know I'd made that mistake. <laughs> but Jesus was not preached there. It wasn't easy growing up without a father. My mother never remarried, and we were always hard up. We were all expected as a matter of course to win scholarships wherever we went. I discovered when I was still quite young that I had been given a very good mind. I developed the habit of never taking anything for granted. I preferred to figure things out for myself and make up my own mind. I wanted to find the truth for myself. At the age of eight, I was sent off to boarding school. I hated it. Being a Yank at an English boys' boarding school in the 1950s was not easy. Small boys absorb their parents' prejudices and amplify them. It is hard to hear the things that you value and, and are proud of ridiculed over and over again. As you can imagine, it affected my outlook on life. But I did get one thing out of it, apart from my education, that is. The schools were nominally Christian. Church of England, of course. We were taught a bit about the Bible, and attendance at chapel every day was compulsory. If you missed it, you were beaten. But Jesus was not preached there either. Meanwhile, though, I developed a love for the King James translation, for the Psalms, which we sang every day, and, of course, for organ music. I was not a believer when I left school or in danger of becoming one anytime soon. It had always been assumed, even by me, that because my father was a doctor, I would become one too. So at 18, I went off to medical school in London. Although this was the swinging 60s, my life was pretty humdrum. I was working hard, and I didn't want to block my copybook and endanger my career. Besides, I had no money to spare. In fact, at one point, I worked as a disc jockey at night to make ends meet. I was determined to get through medical school without any debt. It nearly killed me, but I managed it. But church and Jesus played no, no part in my life during medical school. I got my medical degree and worked in various house jobs, as they're called in England. That's internships and so on, residencies. But after two years, I realized that there was no future for me in the National Health Service. I hated the delays, the excuses, the shortcomings. I could see myself in 10 years' time, angry, embittered, and frustrated. I didn't want to become that person. So I thought to myself, I'm 25, I'm single, I have no debts, I've got a medical degree, and an American passport. So I'll go to America. A kind friend, a distinguished surgeon in New York, was able to wangle a position for me in a surgical training program there. On his recommendation, they took me sight unseen, and I took the position sight unseen. All my friends in England thought I was completely crazy and told me so. More importantly, that I would have great difficulty in my career if I tried to come back to England, tainted by American medicine. In spite of all that, I left for New York on June the 28th, 1973, knowing that I was burning bridges behind me, that there was no way back. 
I began work in my new position at St. Luke's Hospital in Manhattan. About 10 days later, as best I can remember, I met a young lady who was a medical intern there. <coughs> this is where the story gets more interesting. Ours was a real hospital romance, not like the ones on television. We took our time getting to know one another. Our courtship, if one could call it that, went on for three years. I was working 100 hours a week, 130 hours on alternate weeks. Her hours were not quite as bad. She was a believer, I was not. In due course, we got married. That was in 1976. She had not been well taught up to this point. She was not familiar with the biblical concept of being unequally yoked, or of the warning in 2 Corinthians <coughs> against marrying unbelievers. I made it clear that I was not opposed to her faith, merely that I did not share it. I told her that if going to church was important to her, it was important to me too, and I would go to church with her. And I did so every Sunday for many years, <coughs> provided that I was not at the hospital, of course. Eventually, I finished my training at Columbia Presbyterian in New York. <coughs> she had finished hers a couple of years earlier, and we were both offered positions on the faculty at Dartmouth Medical School on the very day that our daughter was born. Faculty positions at Dartmouth had been our dream even before we were married. So this was an amazing day for both of us. We moved up here with our two-month-old daughter in January 1981. We looked around for a suitable church, visiting several, but we didn't really find one. Then Billy Graham came to Dartmouth. Hard to believe now, isn't it? Marion noticed that the host for Billy Graham, the Billy Graham event, was someone from Campus Crusade. She called him and asked him where he went to church. That was Larry Christensen, for those of you who know him. Larry told her about Valley Bible Church. Marion knew I would have misgivings about Valley Bible Church. So when my believing cousin Richard visited from England, she used his presence as an excuse to visit VBC. She knew I wouldn't dare refuse. <laughs> that was on April the 25th, 1982, so 37 years ago last Thursday. Amazing. On that, on that Sunday morning, we drove up to a squat, ugly building behind a car dealership. I thought to myself, no way. <laughs> we went in and sat down I was still extremely dubious, but too polite to say anything. Eventually, a tall, thin man got up and walked to the front of the church. And I realized that this must be the preacher. Again, I thought to myself, no way. <laughs> but then he began to preach. I realized that he really believed what he was saying, that he believed the Bible was true. This was completely different from anything I had ever heard in church before. Amen. He was compelling. I thought to myself, there might be something to this after all. That preacher was Eli Mercer, in case you hadn't guessed. After the service, 
a cheery and attractive couple came up to us and introduced themselves. They said they would like to get to know us, but that they had to run off and they hoped we would come back. That was Tim and Joanne de Molin. We did come back. We came every Sunday. We came to learn from Eli. And Marion enjoyed the women's fellowship. We came every Sunday for years, both of us learning steadily. But I still wasn't ready to accept Jesus. A good deal of my academic work at that time had to do with probability. And I realized there had been far too many coincidences in my life. That someone must be fooling with the laws of probability. I suppose at that point, I might have called myself a deist. But I still wasn't ready to come to the faith. In my pride, I said to myself, I'll think this one through too. Then I can sort out this Jesus business for myself once and for all. But I was too busy to do it yet. One day, perhaps. <coughs> Meanwhile, many kind people in the church were praying for my salvation. I made steady progress in my understanding of the Bible, but I found that somehow I just couldn't come to saving faith by my reason alone. One day, it finally dawned on me. This must be where the faith part comes in. I remember that it was the Sunday of commencement weekend at Dartmouth in 1997. On Sunday, June the 8th, 1997, I finally submitted and gave my life to Christ. It was right here in this room. It's about where George is sitting. I was sitting at that point. So, loose thy shoes from off thy foot. <laughs> I had found a new father at last. A heavenly father. There was no dramatic change in me. Outwardly, I must have seemed much the same. But on the inside, things were happening that I didn't understand. I was slowly changing in ways that I could not explain. Meanwhile, my surgical career was at its height. I was conducting national seminars on quality improvement in cardiac surgery. I was consulting for cardiac surgery programs that were in trouble. I was coming out for promotion to full professor at the medical school. And all this on top of a busy operating schedule, teaching and research at DHMC. And yet, I had no time or energy left for anything but work. My answer to the work-life balance question was, what life? I haven't got one. It began to seem to me a silly way to spend the rest of my life. By the autumn of 2000, I found that I couldn't get rid of the idea that I was supposed to just walk away from it all. I began to think that what God wanted from me was not just my money, but my time. That he wanted me to walk away from it all. I was only 52 and it seemed like foolishness. After 35 years, medicine was all I had known. Besides, how would we live without my salary? but the idea wouldn't go away. Finally, I decided to ask our financial advisor to run the numbers for me. I thought to myself, that'll settle it. There's no way I can afford to retire now. 
He called me back and said, if you can live on X, then you can afford to retire based on my projections. <coughs> that was not what I wanted to hear. So I told him to run the numbers again, making extremely conservative assumptions. He called me back and gave me more or less the same answer as before, with a lower number. So I prayed about it, and Marion prayed about it, and we came up with the same answer. I told my friend and boss that I wanted to retire early, at the end of June 2001. I would be 53 then. He thought I was crazy, but he also knew me well enough to know that I meant what I said. I knew that there could be no going back. I was not equipped for any other occupation. I would need further training even to drive a school bus. Even so, on June the 30th, 2001, I walked away from my medical career, all I had known for 35 years, and stepped into the unknown. There was no way back. I was burning bridges behind me again, and again everyone thought I was crazy. My greatest fear was boredom, and my earnest desire was to be allowed to make a difference in some way in the time I had left on earth. My Heavenly Father has been very kind to me since then. I have been getting to know him more and more as time goes on. Of course, he had a plan all along. In case you think that it has all been smooth sailing, there were a few bumps along the way. I had been retired only a couple of months when along came 9-11. That had not been part of the financial plan for my retirement. And my 401k plan became a 101k, as it were. When I was younger, I had spent a huge amount of time worrying about money. But this time, I felt strangely calm about it all. Even I was surprised that it didn't seem to be bothering me. I told my Heavenly Father that this was his problem, not mine. This, that this early retirement thing had all been his idea in the first place. I prayed about it, but I didn't do anything else. And slowly but surely, over the next year or so, our financial situation recovered under his sovereign care. A few weeks later, I was asked to sit in with the board at Mid-Vermont. Soon they talked me into becoming treasurer and then chairman. That lasted for nine years. When my term as chairman was up, I had no idea what I would do next. Of course, once again, God had a plan. A few weeks later, Pat Curtis invited me to lunch. He asked me to consider becoming an elder at VBC. I was surprised, to say the least. I really didn't think that I was the right man. I asked him for three months to think about it, pray about it, and talk to trusted friends. I read and reread 1 Timothy 3. The husband of one wife. Jack. Sober-minded? Jack. Self-controlled? Mostly. Able to teach? Check. As for the rest? No, that is not me at all. But eventually I came to understand that no one meets that standard absolutely. So when the three months were up, I agreed to sit in with the elders for a time. 
<coughs> excuse me, to see how things went and whether I could see my way to becoming an elder. And here I am today, an elder at VBC of all things, standing in the same squat, ugly building that we first visited 37 years ago. But now I have a heavenly father. And now I want to publicly acknowledge those who had most to do with my coming to faith. First, my dear wife, who loved me and prayed for me through all those years between our wedding and my salvation, and still does. She has taught me all about unconditional love and about forgiveness. She walks the talk, and she always has. As it says in 1 Corinthians 7.14, the wife sanctifies the husband. Look it up. She is still in the business of sanctifying her husband. Then Eli Mercer, for his faithful preaching of the word, in a manner that was convincing and engaging for a skeptic like me, and all those wonderful people who prayed for my salvation all those years. Many of them still attend Valley Bible Church. Some, like Henry Kessler, are with the Lord. And, of course, the Holy Spirit. And that is the story of how I found my father. He is a loving father. He's been very patient with me. He's been very good to me. And I'm still getting to know him. Thank you.